is the start of a brand new series for us today called All Is Not Lost. Now, typically what happens, right, I understand how this is supposed to work, but let's be honest, we've not really done that very often in our church history so far in terms of doing what's supposed to work. We're a little bit borderline inappropriate at times. We, we know our kind of our own thing and we're going to do it our way. And I guess with a series, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to kind of like work through the weeks or work through the message and at the end of the talk, so like in about 34 and a half minutes time, I'm supposed to like land the plane and give you all the best information like right at the end. But the reality is, is that as we approach Easter, we don't wanna do that at all. In fact, we wanna be upfront and honest and give you the best news that we're gonna be talking about throughout this season, this series, right here, right now. And that's simply this. In this series, we wanna be convincing you that God likes you, God loves you, and God is for you. Like no matter who you are, where you're from, what your history is, no matter whether you've ever been to church before or whether this is your first ever time in church, God likes you, He loves you, and He's for you. And if you walk out of church knowing that over the next three Sundays, then I'll feel like I've done my job correctly. But also as well, it is Easter. It's the Easter season that we're all fast approaching. And this is undoubtedly a great time and a great season to just bring people from your world into your church world. So I just want you to know for the next three weeks that if you bring someone, if you bring a family member, if you bring a friend, especially on Easter Sunday, then I'm letting you know right now, this is what we're gonna be talking about, how God likes you, God loves you, and God is for you. And we're gonna do that through three simple Jesus stories told by the people that were around him the most. We're talking today about a story that happened way before the crucifixion. Next week, we're gonna be talking about the crucifixion. And then on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, we're gonna be talking about how a group of followers all experienced a great overwhelming sense of just the complete and utter loss of hope. And we're gonna be seeing how God really makes a huge, impactful difference in all of our lives. So God likes you, God loves you, and he's for you. So hey, we could pretty much finish the message there right now, I think. You know, there are certain things in all of our lives that we remember the most. Like there are landmark moments, especially as you're growing up, of things just happening in your life that you always will remember and that you'll just never ever forget. It's kind of like, you know, when you're 17 and you pass your driving test, it's like that feeling of sheer elation is just incredible. You never ever forget that moment. Or maybe you know when you're 25 and you're having your first ever kiss. Sorry, did I say 25? Liverpool, right. When you're nine and you're having your first snog behind the bike sheds, right? It's just one of those things that you're just never gonna forget, right? Or if you're a boy, you kind of never forget your first fight, do you? It's like the first time that you, that you punch someone, you never ever forget that. And then the first time that you're punched, you feel like, why did I even punch them? Because now this really hurts. I, I don't wanna be doing this, but you never really forget your first fight. I can remember my first fight. I was about 13 years of age, and I'd like to say that it was just happening on the streets out there in the wild ghetto, but the reality of it was it happened behind the caravan on the front lawn, and um, there was this guy, he thought that he was a bit of a bully, and me and him didn't really get on, so we just kind of like, we just had it out 
right there and then on the front lawn of my parents' house. And we kind of came to fisticuffs. And, you know, I'd like to say that it was just kind of like brutal, but it was really like, like two 13-year-old boys trying to fight that really didn't have a clue what to do. So we were just kind of throwing haymakers at each other. But what happened as a result of that fight was, and I'm ashamed to even say it, but, but I broke my hand. I received what's called a boxer's fracture. And what's hilarious is, isn't it funny how your parents always seem to know what's happening at every given point in your life, sometimes even before they've even happened? Have you ever realized that? But I can remember kind of walking into the house that night and somehow, some way, they'd received the news that I'd had this fight. And isn't it funny how Mums and dads always respond very differently. You know, like my mum was just this look of horror, like I can't believe you've done this. What are you doing? What are you playing at? And my dad's first question, it was very honest. He just said, so did you win? I mean, literally, that was the difference between my dad and my mum. But as a result of me breaking my hand, I wasn't able to write or anything for a long period of time. And that meant that I needed a note to go to school so that I didn't have to write. But, but rather than my mum just saying that I'd picked up an injury, I really wanted her to lie for me and say that maybe I'd done it at football or something. No, no. She wrote like war and peace in my homework diary so that every single teacher for weeks and weeks and weeks would have to read this account of how I'd had a fight and broke my hand and was therefore unable to write or do any movement of my hand in their lesson. I mean, every teacher was so ashamed of what I'd been up to. And I remember how my mum just went silent with me for what felt like forever. I mean, she was just thoroughly disappointed. I think the main reason why she was thoroughly disappointed was because as a result of me breaking my hand, that meant that I was gonna to have to attend A&E and get an X-ray. The problem being is that my mum was a radiographer and she ran the X-ray department. So now we're having to go into this X-ray department and have my hand X-rayed and she's telling everybody, like unashamedly, tell them how you did it, son. Tell them what you were up to. And I'm like, I had a fight. And I, no, tell them, you punched him and you did this and now you deserve this. And everywhere I went, it was just this overwhelming feeling of just shame. And highly, I, was, I was highly embarrassed, you know. It's funny again, you know, how mums and dads respond differently. You know, like my dad found out that I'd broke my hand and his question was, well, what did you do that for? And it's like, I didn't do it on purpose, dad. But the reality of it is, is that my parents, especially my mum, she was like so, so mad and cross and disappointed. All because as a result of me making this one decision to have this one fight this one time. But you know that overwhelming feeling of just shame and embarrassment that you feel that when you're a child that you have going on with your parents or your teacher? Have you ever noticed how that, that feeling, it doesn't really ever go away? The only difference is, is that now you're an adult, you can look back on your childhood and you can be like, <laughs> remember when you had a fight behind the caravan and broke your hand? You look back and you laugh and you smile, right? But when you're an adult, it's not all that funny because it feels like the consequences are just way more severe. I mean, when you make mistakes as a child, you can look back and laugh and smile knowing that probably everything will kind of work itself out. But in your adult life, I mean, this can be a game changer. You make a mistake, you make an error, you do something foolish, you act in a particular way. I mean, this can hurt you. 
And now you have to walk around with this sense of shame and embarrassment. And this applies to us all because there's so many different ways that we just are not accustomed to to carrying the weight of shame and guilt around with us in our life. I mean, every single one of us knows what it's like to drop the ball. Every single one of us knows what it's like to make a mistake relationally. You know, many people will know of what it's like to have maybe taken a different trip in life on the wrong path, where you've been hanging out with the wrong people, just doing and messing around with all the wrong stuff. And you know it's wrong, but at the time, it just kind of feels like it's worth doing, maybe as a result of there not being anything else going on, but you end up on the wrong path and you don't know how to get off the path and you know what you're doing isn't great for you, but it ends up with you feeling this overwhelming sense of just shame and this weight of embarrassment, like, why did I even do that? Why did I even go that way? I mean, I don't really like them and I know that they don't really like me, so why am I hanging around with them doing all of those things? We know what it's like to make foolish decisions with our finances. You know, you make one bad choice and you get yourself into a little bit of debt, but because you've done it once, it's so much easier to do it on every other occasion afterwards. And the debt mounts up and the credit cards can't be repaid. You owe thousands. And because you owe thousands, it now makes sense. Well, hey, what difference does it make if we just start adding a naught onto it? It just kind of makes you feel like, man, why did I make these financial choices? Why did I rack up the debt? Why did we buy that thing that we didn't even need anyway? And you know that it just ends up with you feeling this overwhelming sense of like guilt and shame. Like, why did I do that? I mean, that was just a stupid acquisition of something that really is not gonna add a day to my life or do anything good for me at all. Why did I do that? Some of you, you know what it's like to just get involved with the wrong guy or the wrong girl. And it started out as something that just felt so exciting at the time. And it was like, yeah, this is gonna be it. This is gonna be the way. But before you know it, that night of excitement just turns and rolls into something that's toxic. And you know what? Eventually, it just becomes destructively, addictively toxic in your life. It's like you're just partnering with the wrong person. You're running with the wrong guy, with the wrong girl. And relationally, you're just left with this overwhelming sense of shame and embarrassment, like, why am I even here? Like, why did I make that decision to spend the night in the first place? Why did I have the extra drink? Why did I go there? And we carry these skeletons and these secrets around in our closet because we don't know what to do with the weight of the shame and the embarrassment. We all know, if we're honest, what it's like to tell a lie and be deceitful. Maybe it's over the business contract. Maybe it's over the sales figures. Maybe it's just for some particular reason that's gonna give us our own personal gain and benefit. We've all made these mistakes. And the problem is, is we're really good. If you're anything like me, you're really good at making the mistakes. But the problem is, is you're not great at handling what you feel like after you've made the mistake. You're great at making the errors and the dumb choices and the stupid decisions. We're all amazing at that. But the weight of shame and guilt and embarrassment that comes afterwards, it's like our bodies just weren't designed to carry that. And this is so important for us to understand how we deal with this, especially if you're a Christian. Because if you're anything like me, what you'll find is that the failures that you make in life just seem to battle against the faith life that you're trying to pursue. 
I mean, the more failures, the more mistakes you make, it makes you feel like, well, God would never be interested in you. God surely has no plan for you. God could never use a someone like you. So you now discount your faith life because of the failings you've made in your past. So many people who start out on the journey of following Christ have a great strong faith in the early days, but the more mistakes and more errors and more failings they encounter in life, it just tells them, well, actually, God would never really be accepting of you. That church would never really be understanding of someone like you with your history and your past, knowing really what you're up to right now. And we kind of have this great big conflict that exists between our failures and our faith life. In fact, maybe you're not even a Christian and you're just in church with us this weekend because maybe someone's dragged you along or you're just checking things out. I bet that that's probably the biggest tension that you wrestle with and manage with too. It's that idea of like, are you serious? You're trying to tell me that God likes me, God loves me and God's for me when he must know what I've done. And it's like, you're mindful and you're aware of all of your errors and all of your mistakes. There's no way that I would be able to follow the Christian faith because of the way in which I've screwed up and the way in which I've messed up. It leaves me feeling with this great overwhelming sense of like shame, embarrassment, like I've just let myself down and I've let everybody else down. So if our failures in life can damage our faith life so much, what are we supposed to do with that? And is there anybody in the Bible that maybe would have encountered this same overwhelming sense of shame and embarrassment? Is there anybody in scripture whose life we can look to that we can just kind of learn from how to negotiate our way through the seasons in life that we all have where we're just making continued mistakes? Is there anybody in scripture that can help us bridge the gap between the failures that we make in life and the faith life that we're so desperately trying to pursue? Well, the great news is that absolutely is. In fact, there is a ton of people whose lives we could go investigating. But today I want to focus on one individual that was one of Jesus's closest aides. He was one of the early disciples. His name was Peter. And Peter was a young, rugged fisherman, but he knew exactly what it was like to make a huge mistake. But what's funny is that Peter didn't start out in life making all of these crazy big mistakes. He started out as a key figure of one of Jesus's inner circle. He was not only a disciple, but he was part of Jesus's closest tribe. Not only was he part of that three, uh, Peter, James and John, who would go everywhere with Jesus and who when Jesus would pray, he'd wanna pray with these three guys, but he was also someone that traveled everywhere with Jesus. So he saw Jesus doing the miracles. I mean, can you just stop and pause about that for a moment? Every time that Jesus would would go through a town and a village and conduct a miracle. Peter was there seeing it happen with his own eyes. Peter saw the dead raised, the blind healed, the deaf given, the ability to hear again. He was there all of the time. And Peter was the one who, when Jesus called out and spoke on the water, he called out to Peter and said, why don't you walk on the water with me too? So he's a pretty significant person in the New Testament Church, as we're later going to find out, and yet Peter screwed up massively. He made some incredibly bad mistakes, one of them in particular. And what's interesting is that when Peter made the mistake that we're going to look at today, 
we can look and see that the timing of this mistake that he made came immediately after one of his biggest victories and one of his biggest, greatest moments ever. You see, the context was this. Jesus was having a plot compiled against him. A group of people had decided that they were gonna sell him out. And the Roman authorities, the soldiers, had gathered in this garden called Gethsemane. And their plan was they were gonna arrest and detain Jesus. Because if they could arrest and detain Jesus, they would be able to, in essence, bring him before the high priest, a local court. And they were intentional about trying to see whether they could have him not only arrested, but also killed. And in the garden of Gethsemane, when all of these Roman soldiers descend with the plan and intention of arresting Jesus, one of the soldiers specifically took hold of Jesus and the scriptures recount how Peter was the guy who drew his sword and literally lunged towards the soldier that was attempting to detain Jesus and he cut off his ear. I mean, a little bit of an inconvenience, right? I mean, another crazy story happens there because Jesus ends up having to heal this poor man's ear that's just had it cut off by Peter. But in that garden of Gethsemane, what we see is that Peter is at his bravest. He's at his most courageous. It's a moment that's just full of heroism and loyalty and machoism. It's Peter being that rough, rugged fisherman just coming to the side and the aid of Jesus because he saw that his friend was in trouble. He could see that they were trying to detain him and Peter's spirit rose up and said, not on my watch. And he draws his sword and he chops this guy's ear off. And yet... Peter's biggest mistake, his biggest failing, it comes right after that moment where he was demonstrating his warrior-like spirit. It showed us his weakest and his worst side. And I think that each and every one of us have a weakest and a worst side too. So this is someone that we can all relate to. So let's find out what actually happened. We're going to go to the New Testament. We're going to go to the book of John, chapter 18. And this is the story. It says, meanwhile, so what had happened was the soldiers had arrested Jesus and they were marching him now through the town. They were taking him through the village. They'd closed the gates of the city and were now going to try and arrange for this meeting to take place with the high priest. But Peter wasn't allowed into the meeting. So it says, meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing there outside the gate, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you? They were like, hey, aren't you one of the ones that follow Jesus? Aren't you like part of his inner circle? Aren't you one of the ones that proclaim that you follow the Christ? And Peter responds, he denied it saying, I am not. Verse 26, one of the high priest's servants, who by the way, would have been a young, young servant girl. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster crowed. So here is Peter, this mighty, rough, loyal, brave, courageous, heroic-spirited man denying on multiple occasions that he doesn't even know Jesus. Even though he'd just been with him in the Garden of Gethsemane and even though there's a young, small servant girl with him 
who turns around and she's like, hey, listen, you know the guy who had his ear cut off in Gethsemane just a few moments back? Well, he's like my, my uncle or my cousin or my second cousin, or maybe it was her brother, we don't know. But she's like, well, he was my family and I was there and I saw it happen. And I'm certain, I'm sure that it was you that cut off his ear. I mean, aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? Aren't you one of the disciples? And Peter, this brave and broken disciple turns around, he's like, nah, it's not me. I don't know who you think it is, but you got the wrong guy. It's, it's not me, I'm not, I'm not a follower of him. I, I'm just here stood by the fire trying to warm my hands. I don't really know what all the commotion is that's going on around me. I don't know what's going on. I don't understand everything that's happening. I'm just trying to get warm right here. It's like, no. This isn't me at all. You know what's fascinating in the scriptures is the way in which the gospels of which there are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they often will recount the same story or the same event happening, but just with a slightly different angle. So what's fascinating to me is that what Luke recounts, and Luke was a doctor, he was a forensic, uh, really forensic in his approach, he was a detail guy. What he says in verse 66 of chapter 22, recounting this very incident, is Luke says that immediately after that Peter had denied Jesus on multiple occasions and this rooster starts crowing. I mean, a rooster crowing? What's that about anyway? Immediately after this rooster starts crowing, it tells us that Peter left crying bitterly. He's broken right now. He's just denied even knowing the one that previously he, would, he had sworn that he would give his life for. He's been with this Christ, this one and only son of the one and only real God. He's been with him. He's seen the miracles. He's been one of his disciples. He's been in the inner circle. And yet right now, when the going got tough, Peter turned his back. Right now, when the heat was on, Peter ran away because his heart couldn't handle it. The one that claimed that he would be fiercely loyal to Jesus actually demonstrated the greatest act of cowardice. And Peter couldn't handle it. He's broken. He's made a mistake. He's made a huge error. He's made a massive miscalculation of his judgment. He's made a mistake and now he's crying bitterly as he runs away from the courtyard, as he runs away from that campfire because he's feeling the weight of shame and guilt and embarrassment. Hey, if we're gonna be honest, is that not exactly the same? Exactly the same thing that happens to us? when we make a mistake, when we make an error, when the relationship doesn't work out, when the money thing doesn't go as wisely as we'd have liked it to, when we parent in a way that actually can be detrimental to our children, when we, when we make these life choices, it makes us feel like, you know what? I'm so overcome with the weight of the guilt and the shame, I might as well just completely run away from here. This is something that we can all relate to, but what is fascinating to me anyway is that this is not the last time that we see or hear of Peter. I mean, it wasn't like he made this, this mistake and it became the end of him. It wasn't like that Peter's failure was fatal for him even in his faith life. 
It wasn't at all because, just check this out, I'm just gonna reference it, but in Acts 2, verse 14, it's like now, Jesus has been taken to the cross and he's been resurrected, he's been brought back to life, but the, but the new early church is all about to start and in Acts 2, verse 14, it recounts and it says this, it says, then Peter, being the same Peter that was brave, that was loyal, that first fiercely uh, proclaimed that he would never ever turn his back on Jesus and that he would die for him. He is this guy that's now we see found in Acts 2 where it says, then Peter stepped forward with the other 11 apostles and he shouted to the crowd. And at this moment, there are thousands of people gathered around Peter and Peter starts to talk about this story of how, hey, listen, guys, you've got to know no matter what background you're from, even though that you've been in the Jewish religion for such a long time, you've got to know that God in heaven is a loving heavenly father and he loves you and I so much that he gave Jesus Christ as his one and only son so that if we today, if we choose to believe in him, not only do we get relationship with the Father, but we get heaven. Peter was the one that gave that story. Peter was the one that started to proclaim, hey, listen, this is the early church arriving on the scene of history and it's happened because of God's great grace. And yet I kind of have to say, how come Peter was able to recover from his mistake that often so would, for me, probably take us out. How come Peter was able to reconcile his failures to his faith life? How come Peter was able to look at his mistake and look at his error and not see it as being an obstacle that should now be a barrier to stop him going to God? I mean, how does that even happen? How come it seems as though Peter has found a way to lift himself out of these feelings of guilt and shame? As a result of the mistakes that he's made, how did that even happen? It's like, how did Peter move from John 18, making the biggest mistake, to Acts 2, being the biggest, boldest, bravest, courageous man standing up to proclaim Jesus being the one and only Son of God? How do you make that jump from John 18 to Acts 2? Because I think that's what we all want too. We want to know how do we go from the place of maybe making mistakes right now, this weekend, this week, this month. How do we go from living a life that's riddled with mistakes, where we know that we've let ourselves down, where we know that we've let God down, where we know that we've let our family and our friends down. How do we move from John 18 and those moments to moments where we're just being used by God and feeling like God has got an absolutely brilliant and great and strong plan for our life? How do we make that transition from John 18 to Acts 2? You see, I think that what Peter fully understood was this truth. He may have made a mistake, but he's not a mistake. He may have failed, but that does not make him a failure. Peter knew that God liked him, God loved him, and God was for him. And you've got to kind of ask yourself the question, well, how did Peter know that? You know, to find the answer to that question, we've got to dig a little deeper, and we've got to start to explore a conversation that took place before Peter's denial of Jesus, that happened one day when they were having a dinner together and Jesus and Peter start a conversation. And it was a moment where Jesus, who by the way knows everything that's going on, had a conversation with Peter and he was just letting him know, hey Peter, I know what's coming for you in your future. Like I know that you think that you're awesome and you've got it all going on Peter, but honestly, I know what's ahead of you. I know what's coming 
towards you. And in John 13, so a few chapters earlier, it says this. They're having a conversation and Peter's like, Jesus, I would die for you. I would take a bullet for you. I would run through a brick wall for you. And he says this, Jesus answers and says, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows, there it is again, that that rooster. I mean, what is that about? Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny me three times that you even know me. Before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me three times. If you're inquisitive, you're probably sat there right now and you're going, well, what is this repeated mention of the rooster all about anyway? I mean, why is that even there? Is this like a demon rooster that's like able to just foretell when bad things are happening? You know, or is this rooster, is this cock-a-doodle-doo noise that's going on in the courtyard, is that there? And as Jesus told him that when that happens, it would be like the landmark moment where Jesus would be saying to Peter that when you hear the sound, Peter, you're gonna know in that moment, Peter, that you've just done the very thing that I told you that you would do, that you protested that you would never do. I mean, is that what it was about? I mean, was this some sort of a moment, like a benchmark moment, a a stamp on the history of our timeline that Jesus would use to kind of mark Peter and say, Peter, just so you know, you've just screwed up, Peter. Peter, just so you know, you've just made yet another mistake. Peter, just so you know, you've failed yet again. I mean, is that what the rooster crowing was all about? I mean, was it kind of like some sort of noise association thing that was going on that Jesus at that point wanted Peter to know that every single time from that moment forward that he heard the cockle-doodle-doo thing going on, that Peter would be reminded of his mistakes and his failures and the way in which he dropped the ball and let himself down and Jesus down. Is that what this is actually about? You see, the Bible that we have today, it's got all of these chapters and all of these verses and often it has subheadings in it and they're absolutely brilliant. Because what that means is that whether you're trying to find a particular scripture on your phone, on the Bible app, or maybe even through your physical Bible, it makes it really easy for people like me and you today living in the West, it makes it really easy for us to find our way around the Bible, this compilation of all of these incredible documents. And it makes it easy for people like you and me to to remember certain passages and certain pockets of scripture and verses. But what you've got to understand is this, is that when the Bible was first compiled, when these original documents were first being written, there was no chapters, there were no verses, and there were no subheadings at all. And this creates us a problem because in our education system, what we're taught is when you get to the end of the chapter, that that's the time to have a cup of tea, right? Or our education system tells us when you get to the end of the chapter, when you start the next chapter, there's maybe going to be a different subject matter, a different topic of conversation. It's almost like that 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 conversation is finished and now a new one has begun. You know, it's kind of like a new theme is introduced. The plot thickens and we're moving on with the story. And, And whilst I'm appreciative of all the chapters and all the verses and all the subheadings that are in our Bible, sometimes in order to get the fullness of what God's trying to convey to us, we've got to read in something that's called context. And what that means is often we've got to remove from our minds almost the physical chapters and verses that we see and understand that everything was flowing in to one another. 
And you see, when Jesus was having this moment, this conversation with Peter, it is recounted and the story actually goes on. But what we do is because that version of events happens right at the end of John 13, when we get to the end of the chapter, we press pause, we grab a cup of tea, and then we come back for our next day's Bible reading and we continue reading chapter 14. But the whole story, takes on a completely different slant to how we can handle our mistakes and our failings if we remove the chapters and the verses out and truly understand what Jesus was trying to get into Peter in what would be one of his worst moments ever simply by joining the end of one chapter into the start of the next. Because let me read the same story this way, but including verse one of chapter 14. It says this, they're talking, Jesus is saying, Hey, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'll take a bullet for you, Jesus. I'll run through a wall for you, Jesus. And Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth. Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny me three times that you even know me. Verse one. But don't. Don't let your heart be troubled, Peter. Don't let your heart be troubled in that moment. But instead, Peter, when when you hear the rooster crowing, when you hear the cockle-doodle-doo, when you hear that going on, Peter, you can still trust in God the Father in heaven because He likes you, He loves you, and He's for you. Peter, you can still also continue to trust in me even though you feel abased right now and like you've screwed up, you've messed up, you've made a bad choice, you've said something ridiculous. Peter, I want you to know in that moment, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God, Peter. Don't let your heart be troubled. Continue to trust in me. You see, rather than it being a benchmark that highlights Peter's mistake, Jesus was wanting to use it as a seed that he would plant in Peter's thinking that at every point from that moment on, when he feels the weight of his shame and guilt and embarrassment, that he would know, hang on a minute, I don't have to lose heart. I can continue to follow God and trust in God and follow Jesus. At the scene of the crime, you can still trust in God when the rooster's still crowing. You don't need to lose heart. He was saying this, and when you hear the sound of the rooster crowing, I want you to know something more than the embarrassment and the shame of it all. When you hear the sound of the rooster crowing, I want you to know something greater than the pain that you're feeling in the midst of this moment. I want you to know that when the rooster crows, that this is not a deal breaker between you and me, Peter, that this is not a deal breaker between you and the Father, because even though you may feel like all hope is gone, all relationship is null and void, Peter, I want you to know that all is not lost, that Peter, no matter what your failing is, no matter where you fall short, no matter what the mistake is, it's all recoverable from Peter. We can get beyond this, Peter. We can still move forward together, Peter. That is how Peter knew in Acts 2, where he stands up and he's speaking to the thousands of people talking about the goodness of God. It's because he's been on the receiving end of God's grace. The one that denied Jesus the most and let Jesus down the most was the biggest and greatest recipient of His grace. Jesus wanted him to know that when the rooster crows, Peter, when you feel like you're a basin at your worst moment, at that moment, that's when you don't have to lose heart because you can trust in God, trust in me. And you can understand, really, you can understand, Peter, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. So that's my request of each and every one 
of us all today, that we would allow that same critical seed that Jesus implanted within Peter to fall into the depths of our heart. So that when you're challenged with the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment, that would make you feel like God would want nothing to do with you or God would never use you. God could never walk alongside of someone like you in life. I want the same thing that Jesus dropped into Peter's heart to drop into our heart today. That no matter who you are, or where you're from, no matter what your history is, and hey, even if you're at the scene of the crime right now in your life today, no matter what you're up to right now, last night, last week, even this morning, no matter what the thing is that you're wrestling with, I want you to know, you don't have to lose heart. You can trust in God. You can trust in Jesus. Because if you don't have that in the depths of your soul, I'm worried that you're not gonna make it. I'm worried that you're gonna walk away. I'm worried that you'll leave your Christian faith, you'll walk away from the church and you just don't have to. Because Jesus, says the same thing to us as what he's already said to Peter. Hey, you can take heart, guys. You can still trust in God. You can still trust in Jesus Christ because you are liked and you are loved and God really is for you. Church, let's stand to our feet. We're gonna pray.